Let's pray. Lord, again, we come to you uh, knowing that you are here in our hearts and dwelling each blood-bought child of God by the Spirit. And we pray that the Holy Spirit who wrote the verses we're going to consider and study tonight would illuminate our understanding to their meaning, but also illuminate our understanding to their application. Lord, we ask that whatever temptations we know that we face, that this sermon could help us know victory in them. For any temptations that we are unaware that we face, Lord, make us alert, and may these truths from this sermon be helpful. And then, Lord, for those temptations we are about to face in the future that you know all about, we pray that we be tested and proven to be your own, to be uh, houses for the Holy Spirit, who is very God, that we could choose righteousness and not sin in those future temptations as well. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus, our Lord and Savior's name. Amen. War is always a deplorable thing, but war which has an unidentified enemy and an undefined course of attack is a pathetic thing. Vietnam was such a pathetic war for America. One reads the history of the war in Vietnam and one is impressed by two facts. The American army did not know its enemy and the American army did not know its best plan of attack. Because this was basically a civil war, the Americans had an impossible time distinguishing between the Viet Cong, who were their enemy, and the North and the South Vietnamese, who were their allies. Thousands of American lives were lost because they did not know their enemy or all of his tactics. Because this war in Vietnam was basically a peacekeeping mission gone awry, the American army never really had the support of the American people. For this reason, many have called the war in Vietnam a war that never, America never gave herself permission to win. With an undefined enemy and an illy thought out plan of attack, defeat was inevitable. Bombing was debated, chemical warfare was protested, jungle combat was lopsided. But bluntly, the military force of the Americans of Vietnam was destined to fail. For no army can defeat an enemy that doesn't know using an attack that is not settled upon. There is, of course, a very spiritual and practical lesson for us to learn from the American defeat in Vietnam. And it's this. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, and if we fail to know our enemy either by laziness or willfulness, Satan will cause us to fail in drawing our available plan of attack from Scripture and we, like the Americans of the 1960s in Indochina, will suffer heavy casualties. Don't get me wrong. Our adversary, the devil, has already been decisively defeated by our Savior at the cross. This was proven by the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. However, Satan continues as a rebellious sniper a hostage-taker, seeking the destruction and discrediting of as many of us as he possibly can. Lord Jesus Christ is the victor. The Lord Jesus Christ will be the victor. He will return one day and set up his righteous thousand-year kingdom on earth, Revelation 19. But in the meanwhile, we have a battle to fight in the strength of the Lord and the power of his might. We have a battle to contend in with knowledge of our enemy, and with a biblical plan of attack against him. This evening, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as a born-again Christian, as a blood-bought child of God, you are the target of God's enemy, Satan. You have a bullseye on your back from the moment you transferred your trust to Jesus alone for your salvation. You have a bullseye on your back 
Of course, heaven is not up for grabs for you because it's a gift that isn't earned but received by faith in Jesus Christ. So heaven is not in the balance here. But what is in the balance for all of us, the men in the pulpit and all of you in the pew, and those who hear my voice later on the webpage, what is in the balance is our testimony for Christ, our witness for Christ, our ambassadorship for Christ. That's what's in the balance. And of course, the ranks of the evangelical world is rife with megachurch and non-megachurch pastors who have crashed and burned in sin, some disqualifying themselves, others repentant. And when I share these names, I am mindful that but for the grace of God, I could be any one of them. Billy Graham's grandson, Tatelian Chevadian, successor to D. James Kennedy at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Florida, had an affair, and has divorced his wife since. Mark Driscoll, Pastor Mark Driscoll, who was found to abscond with some of the money given to the Lord in his network of churches. And as things came forward, he was abusive verbally of his female staff, and he was a bully behind closed doors for his ministry leaders. R.C. Sproul, Jr., son of R.C. Sproul, Ashley Madison, a website dedicated to finding someone to have an affair with. In a moment of weakness, R.C. Sproul Jr. went to that site. He didn't open an account. He didn't have an affair. But because of his high place of leadership, he's under suspension for a year from Ligonier Ministries. Bob Coy, Pastor Bob Coy in Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. Pornography and adultery. Tony Campolo saying now that homosexuality is not a sin to him because his son is involved in that lifestyle. T.D. Jakes, who recently has said publicly that he's not sure that homosexuality is a sin. Ted Haggard, a megachurch pastor in the late 2000s in Colorado Springs, Colorado, taking crystal meth and going to a male prostitute. But for the grace of God, there go any of us. But we have an enemy who wants to discredit us. He wants to remove us from ministry, whether we're behind a pulpit or not behind a pulpit. We have an enemy. We need to know him so that we can fight him with the word of God and what we'll see in Jesus Christ's life in Matthew 4 tonight. The paragraph before our attention this evening is the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly handling the adversary's temptations under the microscope. We'll learn essential lessons on how we can handle satanic temptation from our Lord's perfect example. First, this evening, I want to draw our attention to three lessons which we can learn concerning the adversary, Satan, and his plan of attack against us. And second, I want to point out two lessons concerning God's plan of attack for us against Satan. So when we study Satan's attack on our Lord Jesus, the first thing we see, point one, our adversary tempts us to pamper ourselves. Our enemy tempts us to pamper ourselves. If you go to Matthew 4, verses 1 to 3, we see this. Then Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Command that these stones become bread. Here Satan approached our Lord with a temptation to pamper himself. If you go over to Mark 1, holding your place in Matthew 4, please. Mark 1, beginning at verse 12 and reading verses 12 and 13 of Mark 1. And immediately 
The Spirit, that's a capital S, the Holy Spirit, impelled him to go into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. The first approach of Satan for you and for me is he tempts us to pamper ourselves. If you look back just at Matthew 3, the last two verses of Matthew 3 that are the preceding context of our verses in Matthew 4 tonight, there's a tremendous high mountain experience in Jesus Christ's life. He emerged on the scene in Palestine after 30 years of obscurity, living sinless in Nazareth. But as he emerged on the banks of the River Jordan, and John the Baptist was baptizing for a baptism of repentance to the Jews that would believe, Jesus appeared on the banks of the River Jordan to be baptized. Not that he had any sin, but he was modeling for the Jews of his day that repentance was necessary for them. And we read in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 of Matthew this, And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Not surprisingly, what happened to Jesus is still what happens to us. When heaven opened blessing upon the Son of God, audibly, visibly with the dove, hell opened temptation to Jesus. And so it is with us. As we experience spiritual mountaintop experiences, be sure that after those mountaintop experiences, that the very fury of hell and Satan will come to tempt you, to disqualify you, to discourage you, to defeat you. Was true for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament when they were prosperous and known the Lord's victories and become complacent, prayerless, careless, Satan tempted them as a nation to sin. Our obedience often triggers Satan's attacks. It certainly was true of Jesus at his point of baptism. Almost immediately as he came out of the water, as the dove descended with a visual sign of the Father's approval of Jesus' sinlessness, and as the heavens cried out, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. On the heels of that came the temptations of Christ in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Before we get further into the first temptation, let me ask a question that may be on your minds at this time. Doesn't God say in the book of James that he tempts no one? Didn't Jesus teach us in the disciples' prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? To understand what these verses mean, we must distinguish between a temptation and a trial. Satan tempts with the hope that we will fail in sin. God tests with the hope that we will pass the test and bring glory to him. A temptation is from Satan. A test is from God. And in this passage this evening, what was happening was there was a temptation for Jesus from Satan, but there was a proven testing by God the Father of his son in the wilderness without food for 40 days. I had the privilege of studying at the University of Toronto, a Canadian university. And the first day of, of lectures in the business administration program, the head of the department said to a lecture theater quite full of students, turn to the person on your right and turn to the person on your left and smile and shake their hands. I thought, well, this is nice. A little more personal than I expected. We did that, and then the head of the business administration department at the University of Toronto said, it is our goal as a faculty, that one of the two people you shook hands with will drop out of the course by Christmas. That is a philosophy, an academic philosophy of tempting. The faculty at the University of Toronto were trying to find out who they could bump out of the program, and their test was structured at a level that sought to do that, and they were successful. The class was reduced by 50% by Christmas. On the other hand, when I went to Dallas Theological Seminary as a graduate student, having graduated from the University of Toronto. That grad school, that seminary, was working to equip us to be ministers of God's word and pastors of God's churches. 
they were testing us not to tempt us. They were testing us to test us, to prove us, to be called of God and equipped of God to do the work of the ministry as a pastor. There is a big difference. God tests us that we would be proven to stand in his strength. Satan tempts us that we will fail and be discredited and bring shame to the name of Christ. Now, before we move into these actual three strategies of temptation that Satan brought to Christ, there is a doctrine I want to explain to you. It is called impeccability. Jesus Christ was and is an impeccable Savior because he is God, and God is not capable of sinning. And so when we say that there is an impeccability to the incarnate Christ, we are saying that he was not able to sin. Then you ask, were the temptations we're going to cover tonight truly temptations? Yes, they were. In this regard, a very well-known theologian, Shedd, said this, A person who cannot sin, it is said, cannot be tempted to sin. This is not correct, any more than it would be correct to say that because an army cannot be conquered, it cannot be attacked. Jesus Christ wasn't as impeccable. He's not able to sin. He was not able to sin. And yet he was truly tempted to prove as a test from God, his father, that he was sinless, very God, fused to very man. Let's go to verse 1 of Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, capital S, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Remember, Satan tempts with the hopes that we will fail. God tests with the hopes that we will pass. The Greek word here, which is translated tempted, pararazzo, means to be tried, to be tested, to be proven. And so the same three things that Jesus faced from Satan's point of view were temptations. But from God the Father's point of view, the very same things were not temptations. They were tests. Satan wanted Jesus to fail. God the Father wanted to prove that Jesus could not fail and fall into sin. Now, back to the temptation and tests themselves. According to verse 2, Christ had not eaten anything for 40 days. He had lost weight. He was near starvation in his humanity. He was famished. He was weak. He was hungry for food. When our Lord was in this condition, Satan came to him with a suggestion. Verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. This is the temptation that is a timeless temptation. Pamper yourself. Pamper yourself. If you hold your place in Matthew and go to 1 John 2, near the back of the New Testament and the Bible, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 gives us an incredible window into the tactics that Satan uses to tempt us to sin. Three broad categories, three sweeping themes that Satan has used to tempt people into sin in the past, is still using to tempt people into sin in the present, and the same three categories that Satan will use to tempt people into sin in the future. And we read at 1 John 2, verse 16, notice the three approaches that Satan uses to tempt. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. 
The world is not the continents and the oceans. The world is not even the people created in God's image. The world here is a system, a worldview, a way of looking at life and processing meaning into life. The world is a system that cheerfully leaves Jesus Christ completely out of everything. We're seeing that in the secular two-thirds world, and we're seeing that even in the Bahamas, where Jesus Christ is completely and cheerfully left out of politics, left out of science, left out of the arts, left out of business, left out of everything. It's a system, a world system that is purported and promoted by Satan. And in 2 John, excuse me, 1 John 2, 16, we see these categories. They are still how Satan tempts us. For all that is in the world, number one, the lust of the flesh, and number two, the lust of the eyes, and number three, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. These were the three categories that Satan first used to tempt the first woman, made perfect in God's image, in Eden, Eve. When Satan came to her, he used the lust of the flesh, he used the lust of the eyes, and he used the pride of life. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the, the, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. With the lust of the flesh temptation for Eve, the desire for physical and sensual gratification. The lust of the eyes for Eve, the desire for possession of attractive things. She saw the fruit was beautiful. Under the lust of the flesh, the desire for physical and sensual satisfaction, she was told that she could know things that God knows. That was the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes was she saw the fruit, and it was appealing aesthetically in its beauty. That was the lust of the eyes that Satan used. And then the pride of life is the pride that causes a desire for the elevation of self. And Satan said, if you'll eat of this fruit, you shall surely not die, but you shall know as God knows the pride of life. And Satan still comes to the man in the pulpit and to each of you. Satan still comes with this three troika of temptation strategies. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Again, the lust of the flesh then, when women saw that the tree was good for food, the lust of the eyes, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the pride of life, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she ate. Satan used these three categories of temptation with our Lord. And here in verse 3 of Matthew 4, here in verse 3, Satan was using the lust of the flesh Messiah, you haven't eaten for 40 days. You're starving. Gratify your physical need. Turn these stones into bread. Go ahead and pamper yourself, Jesus. He was trying to peel the lust of the flesh, and he was unsuccessful. He was trying to say, Jesus, use your power to get something to eat. Even though the Spirit of God impelled you and propelled you into the wilderness tests and temptations. Pamper yourself. Still comes to us with that. He still uses the same angle of attack to tempt us. Oh, he may dress that temptation up, the lust of the flesh, dress it up in different clothes, but the angle, the tactic of his approaching us with the lust of the flesh is not changing. He's tempting each of us, pamper yourself. Pamper yourself. Don't do without. You deserve a break today. Indulge. You're worth it. You only go around once, so grab for all the gusto. Why wait? Get it now. Membership has its privileges. Charge it. MasterCard, so worldly, so welcome. God wants you rich. God wants you rich. Pamper yourself don't care who you stomp over and exploit to get rich. God wants you rich. Lust of the flesh. And moving away from advertising jingles, the message is still the same. Pamper yourself. Satan says to us, pamper yourself. Sex is beautiful. You deserve it. Why deprive yourself by waiting until you're married? 
go ahead. Live with her. See if you're compatible before you get married. Or food. Food is for enjoyment. That made you with an appetite. He blessed this town with bakeries. Go ahead and stuff yourself. Enjoy. Eating is one of life's little pleasures. Or pamper yourself. You're entitled to happiness. You're entitled to material success. Your marriage is unfulfilling. You don't feel love for your spouse anymore. Have an affair. Indulge yourself. Your job is unfulfilling and entirely not remunerating you enough. You can take something from the company. And when you work hard and you get a bonus at your workplace, you don't have to think about anybody but yourself. Pamper yourself. Buy a toy. Do whatever you want with the money you've worked hard for. It's your money. Pamper yourself. Turn these stones into bread. You haven't eaten for 40 days, Jesus. Gratify yourself by using your power for your own advantage. Turn these stones into bread. Pamper yourself. And now it's time to look at verse 4, which is, well, let me go over verse 4. Instead, turn our attention to the second tact of temptation. We'll come back to verse 4. Let's see the second way that Satan tempts us. And we read of it in verses 5 and 6 of Matthew 4. Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. To understand what this was, somehow, Satan with his power, Satan does have power, not anything close to God's power, but Satan in his power somehow transported Jesus and himself to Jerusalem, the holy city. And he he pointed out something. He placed our Lord on Herod's royal portico, a wing of the then ancient temple which overhung the Kidron Valley and all of its large boulders. That was a dizzying drop from that temple pinnacle into the valley of 450 feet. What a grand, public, impressive way to prove that you're Messiah. To have gained Jesus without pain, to not have to go to the cross. Exploit God. That is the second tact that Satan used and uses. He not only tempts us to pamper ourselves, secondly, he tempts us to exploit God, to use God for ourselves. Take a swan dive, Jesus off the pinnacle portico of the temple, right into the Kidron Valley, where the hub of the nation Israel's activity is. Just take a swan dive, 450 feet. I mean, in Psalm 91, Jesus, it says that your father will bear you up as Messiah and you won't strike your heel on the rock. So jump. Exploit God. Jesus (laughs) didn't succumb to this temptation based on the pride of life. He did not do that. And on two occasions later in Jesus' public ministry, he had explained to his disciples that he must suffer and die. He couldn't just jump off a temple portico and fall 450 feet and have God the Father be his parachute. He did not jump from the temple portico. He had to suffer and die. Two times in his then public ministry, after this temptation in the wilderness, Jesus responded. Said, Jesus said to Peter, who essentially said, don't die. Don't die. Get thee behind me, Satan. For your interests 
are of the devil and not of God. Get thee behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. And the second time Jesus had to avoid the great temptation to exploit his father to alter the mission for which he was sent to earth, which was the cross. When he faced temptation from Satan to go away from the cross, to avoid the cross, to run from the cross, on a second occasion, he was on the cross, suffering, bleeding, dehydrating, dying. And our Lord had a jeering crowd and an unrepentant thief challenge him. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, save yourself. Get down from this cross. Thank God. Our Savior did not get down from the cross. He did not give in to the temptations, for he knew there could be no gain for us without his pain on the cross. Richard Niebuhr has written this. What we would like to have is a God without wrath who took in man without sin into a kingdom without justice through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Again, Niebuhr, what we would like is to have a God without wrath who took a man without sin into a kingdom without justice through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. There is no cross in Buddhism. There is no cross in Islam. There is no cross in secular humanism. There is no cross in Judaism. There is no cross in any other world religion. Only Christianity has the cross. Satan knew if he could abort the cross, then he could thwart God's redemptive plan. But again, praise God that Satan could not and did not abort the cross. And because our Savior said no to the temptation of gain without pain, we can know the blessings of salvation if and only if we transfer our trust to Christ alone and allow his payment on the cross to pay for our sins. That we be justified, imputed with righteousness, set apart for God's possession and use, reserved a home in heaven. Do you have that faith in Christ? Some preachers preach a false gospel which tells people if they become Christian, then God owes them health, wealth, and wisdom. That, my friends, is not a biblical salvation. That's a world salvation. And that is exploitation of God. And the temptation to exploit God for our own purposes and for our own advantages is still very real today. So far we've seen two types of temptation that Satan presented to Jesus Christ in the wilderness. An appeal to the lust of the flesh, command these stones to become bread. And Satan still tempts us with the appeal to the lust of our flesh. Pamper yourself. Satan Next tempted our Lord through an appeal to the pride of life. Cast yourself down 450 feet into the Kidron Valley publicly. Cast yourself down and let God's angels bear you up. Satan still tempts us with these appeals to the pride of our lives. Exploit God. Use him for what you want. Again, I'm going to skip over as I did the first temptation, on this second temptation, for now I'm going to skip over Jesus' response to the temptations. This one, the response is found in verse 7. And instead, let's examine Satan's last angle of attack on Jesus and his last angle of attack on us. It is in verses 8 and 9, and it is this, our adversary tempts us to doubt God. Our adversary tempts us to doubt God. Verses 8 and 9, please. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I give you if you fall down and worship me. That's interesting. 
Satan couldn't have said that, except temporarily he has some control over the kingdoms of the world. Satan is on a tether. He can only go as far as God allows. He can go no further. We see that in the life of Job, when Satan wanted to tempt Job to sin, God gave him a tether, a leash, and said, you can, you can give him a rough time, but you can't kill him. Satan is on a tether tonight. He is on a leash. And he wants us to doubt God. And again, as somehow with the power of Satan, when Jesus was transported to the temple portico over the Kidron Valley, again, somehow, Scripture doesn't explain, Satan supernaturally transported our Lord to another place, to a high mountain. For Satan, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. And he did so to give Jesus a panoramic view of Palestine, Jerusalem is already on a hill. It's elevated above most of the Holy Land. But Jesus was taken by Satan to some mountain. We're not told which mountain. But he was on a mountain so that he could survey with Satan's pointing out all of the kingdoms of this world. So Jesus could see those things. And he tempted him. He tempted him to capitalize on the lust of his eyes, but he didn't have lust in his eyes because he was God. And Satan was hoping that Christ would have the desire to possess the attractive earthly regions which he could see from that mountain. But do you know what Jesus knew? He had to go to the cross. He had to be crucified. He had to be resurrected. He had to ascend back to his Father's hand. He has to return for the church in rapture, and he has to come a second time to establish his righteous rule for a thousand years over everything Satan showed him in the temptation. Jesus was prepared to wait. Satan was hoping that Christ would have the desire to possess the attractive earthly regions which he could see from that mountain. And really, this was a temptation to doubt the Father's promise. Satan was tempting Jesus. Can you really trust your Father that your kingdom will come and thy will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus? If you bow down and worship me, Satan says, you can have this now. Right now. No cross. No problem. Jesus knew that all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of him as Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. First is a thousand years, lion lying down with lamb, suppressing evil with a rod of iron. Isaiah 1, 11, excuse me, Isaiah 11. Jesus was content to wait. But in effect, in that third temptation, Satan was asking Christ, are you really sure that the Father will make good on his promise that you'll have these things later? Isn't a kingdom in hand worth a kingdom in the bush? And of course, Satan is very uncreative. God is the creator. Satan is very uncreative. He's in a rut. And so he comes to us with these three categories of temptation that he came to Jesus with. And here he was appealing to the lust of the eyes, and he still tempts us with the lust of our eyes to tempt God, doubt God. When we look with envy at the things which money has bought for those around us who have more money than we'll ever have, then Satan tempts us to doubt God's goodness. Oh, yeah? Satan says, God is good? Where's your boat? Satan says, God is good? Why are you sick? Satan says, God is good? Why is your child a prodigal? God is good? Really? That's what Satan says tonight. So when we consider our lives with all our struggles and worries and heartbreaks, then Satan tempts us to doubt God's grace. He asks, if God is so gracious, then why do you have so many problems to contend with? 
Or when we see terrible things happening to decent people, Satan tempts us to doubt God's control over this world. He asks, if God is so sovereign, why do such awful things happen to innocent people? If God is the boss in control of everything, then why are babies aborted? Why do marriages fail? Why do people die? It is scripture, not Satan, which provides the right answers to these questions and many more, which can cause the child of God to doubt God. For we are told in our Bibles that it's easier to forget God in times of our prosperity than in times of our plenty. That it's easier to doubt God when we have it made in the shade than when we're hurting with more question marks than exclamation marks, with more month than paycheck. When we seemingly have it all together, we are most in danger of exploiting God. And when we are in need and we know it, ours is not to exploit God, but to call on God and trust God. That's the God of Scripture. And Christ tells us in the Gospel of John, in his public ministry, that we are to expect problems in this world, but we can be of good courage because he has overcome this world's problems, tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. And it's Scripture which explains that evil presently prevails because it's a fallen, a sin-cursed planet. And we're not home yet. This is not our home. This is, we're tourists on earth. We're not home yet. This is a sin-cursed planet under Satan's jurisdiction on a leash for the moment. But it will not always be this way. One day Jesus Christ will rule and reign with justice and peace and power. And so we've come to learn a lot about our adversary and his attacks. We've learned that our adversary wants to tempt us so that we will fail, and specifically he wants to tempt us to pamper ourselves, to exploit God, and to doubt God. To pamper ourselves, to exploit God, and to doubt God. We've seen these three ways that he attacked Jesus, and these are the three ways he attacks us. But this is not enough. I'm not going to close my Bible and say, so ends the sermon tonight. Because knowing how Satan tempts us is useful, but it's not a complete answer to temptation. We've come to learn a lot about our adversary and his ways to tempt us to pamper ourselves, to exploit God and to doubt God. But we also must learn from this paragraph of how God intends us to attack Satan and thereby to stand and hold our ground in the victory Jesus Christ won at great cost on the cross. And very quickly, I want to see two things about handling satanic temptation. Two things. From Ephesians 6, verse 17, the armor of God passage, Ephesians 6, 17. Ephesians 6, 17 calls this holy book the sword of the Spirit. Scripture is the means of attack God intends for us to have against Satan when we are tempted by Satan. All of the other pieces of armor in Ephesians 6 are frontal, that we would stand three times in that passage to stand against the adversary, stand like a football goal line stand, that the defense stands, at least attempts to stand against the offense in the red zone. Stand. But the only offensive weapon in the Armor of God passage in Ephesians 6 is the scripture. It's the sword of the spirit. The Greek word for sword here is the dagger. Not the big sword they had a word for that beheaded people. Not the medium sword that they wore on their belt to fight at a distance with opponent. But the dagger. This is a dagger. This allows us hand-to-hand combat with Satan. Up close. When he's in our face. When he's tempting us to pamper ourselves, when he's tempting us to exploit God, when he's tempting us to doubt God, we have the dagger 
of the Bible. A short little dagger that we can wield at just the right time with Scripture. And as you read the Lord Jesus Christ's three responses to Satan, three responses, it is written. It is written. You would think that perhaps the Son of God, being very God, would just vaporize Satan with the word of his mouth. He's going to do that to those that follow Satan in the kingdom before the kingdom's ushered in. But Jesus didn't vaporize Satan. Jesus said, it is written. It is written. It is written. And as you read our Lord's three responses, you're struck by the phrase, it is written. Look at verse 4 after the first temptation. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Scripture. It is written. Verse 7, after the second temptation, Jesus said to him, on the, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the third is written is in verse 10. Jesus said to him after the third temptation to doubt God, be gone, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The sword of the Spirit in the hand-to-hand combat against Satan. The dagger, the only offensive weapon that God has given us to stand firm against the temptations of Satan. The Lord had no pocket copy of the Torah in Hebrew to pull out of his smock and to look up those verses in Deuteronomy. He was trained up in his family to know the scriptures. He went to the temple to learn of the scriptures and his humanity. And he knew these verses in Deuteronomy. And he said three times from Deuteronomy, it is written. And he quoted three verses. How would I do if I only had the book of Deuteronomy? How much of it do I know? How much of it have I memorized? But fortunately, we have more than the book of Deuteronomy. As great as it is, we have 65 other books. How well do we know those? When we are confronted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, how much scripture is in our hearts and minds that we can say to, say to Satan who's tempting us? It is written. And quote scripture. That's why Awana is such a terrific program. Because one of the pillars of Awana and its philosophy is for children to memorize scripture. So that when they're tempted as children, they can say, it is written. When they're tempted as young adults at college, they can say, it is written. When they're tempted as adults, husbands or wives, grandparents, they can say, it is written. Because they've hidden God's word in their hearts that they might not sin against him. And the scriptures ward off Satan. Satan knows the Bible. He misused the Bible verse, and he, he took it out of context to say, do the swan dive off the temple pinnacle, 450 feet, where all of the hustle and bustle of the Jews in the capital city of Jerusalem would see it and have God's angels be your parachute. He knew Scripture. Satan knows Scripture. And he uses Scripture sometimes to tempt, as he did with Jesus. And that's why... Studying God's Word with Holy Spirit enablement to study the truths of God's Word in context using a normal interpretation, a literal interpretation, unless it is a figure of speech like God has a wing like a bird and he wants to gather people under his wing. God doesn't have a wing, but it's a figure of speech, a a zoopomorphism, which an animal quality in figurative basis is prescribed to God so we'd understand God more. We have a certain hermeneutic that is more of a science than an art. We take what God has said in his word in context. We take it literally, unless it's a figure of speech. We take it contextually. We take it grammatically. We take it in a dictionary meaning of the words in the original language, and we have one interpretation. If you're in a Bible study and somebody says, what's your interpretation of verse 8, and more than one person answers, you're in a bad Bible study. 
There's one interpretation of Scripture. And when we know God's Word in context, properly apply the timeless principles of God's Word, we fend off Satan and his temptations. Jesus said three times, it is written, it is written, it is written. If we were in Jesus' sandals in that wilderness, 40 days starving, could we have pulled up Scripture like he did? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And so God's word is sin preventative. I'm told that there was a nuclear submarine that the Americans were testing. And they took that submarine to a very deep depth. I understand some of the deepest sea depths are on the east, uh, west end of this island. I don't know where they did the test, but they took a nuclear submarine and they took it down to see how far it could go in depth. And they got far enough that it was crumbled like a paper cup by the pressure of the sea. And yet, in that part of the sea, at that depth, there are fish that are not crushed, that live. Do you know why? Because God has designed those fish at that depth to have a pressure within them as great as the pressure around them. Only a God could do that. And we have a pushback pressure within us who's God, the author of Scripture. And because he has all the pressure to push away Satan, Satan doesn't have to crush you like a paper cup. But for the Bible to have a sin-preventative ministry in our lives, a value in our lives, we must do two things with it. We must meditate on it, and we must apply it. The only way you can memorize Scripture effectively is to memorize it, to hide it in your heart that you might not sin against God, so that you, without your iPhone, without your Bible, without the Bible to grab, you've memorized verses and the pressure that's within you by the Holy Spirit pushes back against the pressure by Satan around you. And so we are to meditate on Scripture. Now let me clarify. Biblical meditation is not Eastern mysticism. When a, when a movie star says, I'm into meditation, what they mean is chanting a mantra from ancient Eastern religion And the purpose of the mantra they chant is to empty themselves of thought. And you know what happens when a person empties themselves from thought that Satan rushes in. Watch yoga. Research where it came from. And so we are to meditate on Scripture. So if meditation in the Bible is not chanting to empty our minds to get some uh, esoteric insight and wisdom, what is meditation in the Bible? Here's what it is. It's filling our minds with Scripture and then chewing on the Bible verse at hand like a milk cow chews her cud. I think there are seven stomachs in a milk cow. And she chews and she chews and she chews on her grass and she chews and she chews and she Uh, ruminates in those stomachs and she has nourishment and she can produce milk. Biblical meditation is not emptying our minds, it's filling our minds with this book and meditating on what's in our minds from this book. Chewing your cud about Bible. Having a verse this week that you chew on and meditate on. We have to read it. Hopefully we memorize it, and then we think on it, we chew on it, we work it into our life. Second thing, after we need to meditate on God's Word, we need to apply it. That is to say, we must actively look for ways which biblical truth impacts how we live. So there is a science to interpreting the Bible, There is one clear interpretation for Scripture verses, but there's a multitude of applications. 
have no other gods before me. That's clear. Have nothing you give greater attention to, time and money to, and affection to than Jesus. That's easy. That's the meaning. But how does that play itself out in your life or mine? That's the application. Do I need to sell my television? Do I need to put a a porn blocker on my laptop? Have no other gods before me. Do I need to stop trying to get rich monetarily? Have no other gods before me has one interpretation. Don't be an idol worshiper as a believer in God. But the application of that truth shows up in our lives in different ways. One interpretation, multiple applications. And if we are going to use the the sword of the Spirit, the dagger of the Spirit, to ward off the hand-to-hand combat of temptation with Satan, we need to meditate on God's Word, and we need to apply God's Word. And the two things reinforce each other. When we are meditating on Scripture, then we are better in a position to apply Scripture. They feed off of each other. I began our message tonight by telling you we need to know both our adversary, Satan, and our our attack from God against him. And if we don't, we're very likely to be a casualty in the war with Satan. If you don't know both your adversary and God's attack for you against him, it is quite likely that you could be disqualified from ministering because of the reproach of public sin. It's not just pastors and missionaries that can be disqualified from ministry by sin. Other believers can be disqualified in ministry by people who look up to you. The pastors I named, gold, girls, and glory. They were tempted about gold, girls, and glory. And all those pastors of large and prominent ministries had thousands of people looking up to them. Thousands of people looking up to them. And do you know what? You may be the only pastor that people are looking up to where you work. Where you live in your home with your children where you do business on the island and beyond. Satan says, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Satan says, pamper yourself. Satan says, exploit God. Satan says, doubt God. But we've learned in our passage tonight that God intends us to attack Satan through Scripture, Scriptural meditation, scriptural application. God intends us to fight Satan as he tempts us with the Bible. Maybe we could remember it this way, one sentence, a bottom line to this message. When it comes to fighting temptation, meditation plus application conquers temptation. Meditation on the scriptures. Application of the scriptures conquers temptation. Maybe you're here tonight, and you've known Christ as Savior for decades, but if the truth be known, you don't know your way around in the Bible at all. Because really you've had one year experience of being a Christian multiplied by 40. You haven't gone deeper into God's Word than you did the first year you were saved. You say, Pastor, I'm whatever age, whatever age. Pastor, I'm a, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. If I, if I believed that, I would sell cars. If I believed that you can't teach an old dog new tricks, I would sell cars. God can change us. And if you, in the privacy of your own heart, say, I've been a Christian decades, but I don't know the Bible. I've had one year of experience as a Christian, and I've multiplied it by 40 years or 30 years or 20 years. You have life. Tomorrow morning, get into the book. You've got to start somewhere. The journey of a 1,000 miles begins with the first step. 
Study the book of Philippians as a sample. When you study the book of Philippians tomorrow morning, get up half an hour earlier than you normally do to make your job, get into the book of Philippians and with a pen and a simple uh, notepad uh, book, uh, note-taking book, and just read. And you read in Philippians chapter 1, start at verse 1, and when you have something hit you, stop and write down in your journal what hit you from what verse. You may read half of a verse. You may read two verses. You may read 20 verses. But the first time that something hits you, write it down. Today in Philippians 1, 1 through 3, I learned that I am to be a co-laborer with Christ and Christ will finish the salvation he started in my life. Stop. That's a practical way to start studying the Bible if you need to start. And I pray that I would leave here tonight better equipped to stand in the victory that I have from Jesus Christ because I know Satan's plan of attack against me and I know that how to fight him off with it is written. To meditate on the Bible and to apply the Bible. True story of a dog handler. He had a dog, a big dog, and he trained his dog to look at him as master and to wait for a command to change from looking at him. And to prove the point, the dog trainer put a T-bone steak in front of the dog and called the dog to attention and called the dog to look into the trainer's eyes, eyeball to eyeball. And the dog didn't eat the steak until the handler said, okay, then he enjoyed it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Scripturally, the same thing is said in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Watch it. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You will have a hard time giving in to temptation if you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And the only way to fix your eye on Jesus is this book. It's not in some ooey-gooey feeling you had once. It's not in some experience. It's in Scripture. It is written. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Lord Jesus, how practical your public ministry is as we read of it in Scripture. We thank you that although you were severely tested in the wilderness, you did not sin. And because you are a high priest acquainted with us, tempted in every way as we are, and yet you are without sin, you are compassionate and understanding to us when we face temptation. Even when we fail and give in to temptation, you are there standing at the ready to forgive us as we repent. As we repent and get back into the book, allowing the author of the book to control us again. Lord, I pray that my family, Calvary Bible Church, the portion which is assembled tonight, for which I'm very grateful, I pray that we would stand the temptations of Satan and not sin and pass the test to be proven to be yours by not sinning when we're tempted. And with Peter... In his second book, in chapter 3, we pray. Second Peter chapter 3. Therefore, beloved, 
knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest, being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.